Welcome to the Alex Merced Cast, where Alex Merced of alexmerced.com brings you principled, thoughtful, libertarian commentary on issues that matter. Hey, everybody, this is Alex Merced from alexmerced.com, and you're listening to the Alex Merced Cast. What we're doing this episode is just kind of go through the remaining questions I have. So I have six more questions out of the questions you guys had wanted for me. Um, some of them are pretty quick answers. So here we go. First one is health insurance and HSAs. Basically, the idea is if everyone had an HSA, would that eventually destroy the health insurance market? Not at all. There's always going to be a health insurance market. The question is, what products are they selling? Are they selling a comprehensive health care like they do now? Maybe not, but I don't think HSAs alone would be what would, would dismantle that need. Um, I think things like direct primary care would be go, also go a long way in, like, my thought process always was, like, I think last year I came out with a proposal uh, when everyone was talking about Trump's or the Republican health care reform ideas of how you could do some reforms to start pushing the healthcare market into sort of more of a free market direction. And this would be to basically replace all health aid at the federal level, just take all the dollars that, that the, the federal government spends on healthcare and put it into a tax credit, a, a, a tax credit on, on healthcare purchases and basically leave it at that so people could basically use this for they can use this credit against hsa contributions they could use it against a purchase of a uh a uh, catastrophic plan they can use it for their monthly fees for direct primary care uh they could use it for um they could use it for premiums on a long-term care policy the idea is you figure out sort of what are the basically there's basically this creates a price point so we figure out sort of what we're spending per person right now in healthcare okay and then basically what's going to happen is this, okay we're going to say this is basically what we're going to continue spending dollar amount we're capping it and every individual gets a tax credit that much and it's up to the individual to kind of figure out piece together sort of what their products will be and then basically everyone else is going to be trying to figure out what's a try to create a product that kind of addresses that price point um, and, and again, they're going to be catering to the consumer. Uh, and then you can start over time reducing that credit um, as the market develops because then the market forces can will take over and you'll start having more reasonable prices and everything will change over time. It will, it, will, it will not be overnight. It will take some time because business models will have to change and be remarketed and it's not going to be pretty. Um, you know, basically, and then you. But on top of that, you'd have to set a sort of cutoff date for like Medicare for or Medicare Medicaid for when that will stop, and then be like, okay. And you can make it, um, yeah, something something to that effect. Again, I had it more thought out last year. So I'm just recollecting it now, but that would essentially be sort of the next step. How you move in that direction. Because then that creates the incentive, that creates the ability for everyone to participate in the healthcare market and it creates the ability for people to start creating that healthcare market and creates that initial price point for people to optimize to. Then once the market kind of forms, um, so everything sort of retools itself, you can kind of start pulling back even further. 
Cool. Um, principles result. Okay, we did that. Uh, party discipline. So this people are asking me like, oh, how do we keep the libertarian party in line so that way everyone focuses on the same thing? You'll never do that. No party has everybody in their party focusing on the same thing. Um, other parties have more contributors um, because they are have been around longer and they were in there before a lot of regulations and stuff that make it harder for a small smaller party to grow. Kind of goes back to that whole monopoly thing I was talking about in a previous episode. Um, but as they get bigger with more contributions, more you can have more party staff. Party staff is really the people who are going to be most disciplined because their financial livelihood is going to be tied to the party's success. Because if the party doesn't get donations, they don't keep their job. And if basically the party doesn't isn't effective, they're not going to get donations. So you need to get to the point where you're getting enough donations to have more staff that can put a lot of these things in place. Whether it's at the state level, state parties sometimes have staff. National, we have staff. But for, you know, first we've got to hit a level so with the staff that we have now, we're doing effective things, and then hopefully that grows our donation base down the road so we can hire more staff and then those additional benefits. And, you know, because ground the volunteers, you can't just sit there and just sell volunteers. Everyone's got to be on the same page about the same thing for the same goals. It's just not the way it works. People are involved in the politics. People contribute to politics out of passion. Also, I think with the other major parties, they get a lot of money from their special interests. We don't in the Libertarian Party because we don't cater to special interests. So we need... We, we depend on the people who are passionate, and they're going to be passionate about different things. But we need to just continue building an effective machine, or a machine that's growing in effectiveness, and then growing those dollars. It's a much longer road, but it's a, it's a road that will build something that will bring a lot much more value to society as a whole. Wealth accumulation. Um, uh, what were they saying here? Well, I, I guess it was just about dealing with wealth accumulation. Here's my thing. With wealth accumulation. Um, the people who built the wealth, you know, after a few generations, it really doesn't matter how big a, a particular, like how many billions a particular person has, because here's the thing they're not spending most of it. And if they spend it, hey, now it's back out there. If they don't spend it, it's saved and it's just being invested by a bunch of money managers, which means it's going into other businesses who are using it to pay their employees. Okay, even if it goes into like derivatives before anyone says that, like if, if it's going into a derivative, it's still being used and eventually going to make its way into some business because most derivatives are just bundlings of other loans that were made to mortgage for mortgages, small businesses, whatnot. So that money is still going to someone who's doing something with it. Um, it just becomes, you know, a billion, a billionaire, millionaire, rich person may have the money they need to consume very comfortably. But at the end of the day, the majority of their money is being used by everybody else. Um, but because they have so much, they have a very, very low um, need for a return so they can actually lend it out, invest it at much lower return projects. While somebody who's not wealthy, they're going to really want more bang for their buck. Okay, they're, they're the marginal benefit, I mean, basically their marginal demands will be a little bit higher. So basically, you know, projects are not high return Projects that are kind of safe projects with low return are probably not like as likely to get the capital, okay? Um, while the multi-billionaire is probably more likely to put it in places that aren't going to do anything crazy. They'll put it in some risky places, but they'll also be able to contribute a lot to not-so-risky places because it's not necessarily always just about making a return than just generating enough of a return to live off the, 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 the yield. So 
I don't worry about that too much. Yeah, I know sometimes people get really annoyed at people who live in opulence, but oftentimes it's short-lived. You know, may last a generation or two, but someone screws it up down down the road. Um, you know, and if they lose it, it should be based on, on on their poor decisions, not because hey, someone just didn't like them having it. Um, yeah. So that's that. I mean, there is a concern about political influence, but that's why government shouldn't have so much power. And again, political influence doesn't just exist within government. It exists in all institutions. And this is a fair concern. But I, I do think uh, it's, it's one that's manageable. Okay. Welfare. How do you abolish welfare? I don't... I, I don't think the goal should be to abolish welfare. I think it should be to just render it obsolete in a sense. Um, I do like the, like, again, a few years, I do like the block granting method of trying to fix aid programs. Like, a couple, uh, a couple years ago, I came up with a tax plan that basically said you have to replace, basically get rid of Medicare, Medicaid, welfare, all the aid programs. And instead, you would replace it with like a credit in the tax and a flat tax code. And if you really want to kind of hear the details of that plan, just look up twenty percent flat tax, Alex Merced. Um, but the idea was, you created this aid program that was sort of aid based. It was built into the tax code, and it didn't tell people how to spend the money. Like basically, people could figure out what they need. They're going to use these funds for. Um, again, it, it allowed for some there to be some more agency with the money to allow some more market forces to approach how this money is used. Um, and hopefully create a situation where the world improves enough where basically that those market forces do market stuff enough that you could reduce those, 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 those supports and eventually just leave it to the, the market entirely. Because again, you have to realize that the world is really far off track right now. Like The world has become really dependent on all, all, all sorts of different supports. So the, the question is how do we get people off those supports? So it's like sort of how do you transition people off? How do you create create people? Give don't take away the support, but put people in a situation where they'll start moving things in a direction where the supports can be removed. It's kind of like um, if you get a cast, you put the cast on because your arm needs to heal for a little bit, and then maybe they'll put on like a smaller cast or some sort of splint, and then but eventually the goal is to not have anything there at all. Um, but right now our arm is broken. Um, we need to do something about that. But um, you could just, I mean, I one, I don't think just saying abolish all the welfare programs is more politically viable. Um, I think the resulting, I don't think if you don't, basically if you get rid of the welfare programs but you don't address the other problems that are causing the economy to be problematic, because it's not, because the reason why the economy isn't growing as fast as it should or being robust as it should isn't because of welfare. The, ta- the taxes that go to fund the welfare do contribute to that, but it's also the regulations. So if you don't address those things, um, you, then what happens, you just have a bunch of people with no supports with a, with, a, with a really lackluster economy, which is sort of the worst of all worlds. Okay, you really, you know, you gotta, you gotta think that through because again, how people respond and their outcomes will determine how sustainable the outcome is. Also, how people view that argument going forward. Okay, so that's that. Liberty versus anarchy. I do think there's a difference between the word liberty and the word anarchy. This is why I don't really refer to myself as an anarcho-capitalist anymore. Um, Because 
um, generally the word anarchy may, means like a world without rules. So it's like when a, when a libertarian, especially one who believes that a stateless society can exist, um, they're, they're, they're not necessarily saying, hey, we're looking for a world with no kind of order or rules. It's more, we're look, we think there's a world that can exist with a radical level of decentralization and voluntarism. It's kind of a different, a kind of a different, um, it has a different tenor in a sense. You're not saying, hey, there's no rules. It's just, just it's not centralized. It's not compulsory. Okay. So liberty is more about giving people license. Okay. And um, what the institutional makeup matters less than whether people have license or freedom to do things with their life, body, and property. You could theoretically imagine a world where this is thing we call government, okay, that may, you know, the government could be theoretically, you know, funded by fines and fees that are for services that we all choose to use. It's still there, but we are not restricted in any other way by any institution that we don't consent to be in. You could imagine that world. Um, so I focus more on the autonomy side of it. Are people free? Do people have their liberty or their life, body, and property less than whether a specific institution exists in that world that enables that? Um, which I feel like when you really get into the word anarchy, you become more, oftentimes you get lost in the idea of hating government and you get distracted from the idea of loving liberty. Um, so I try that. I try, yeah, that's, so I do think there's a difference in the tenor of the words, and then there's a difference in, I think, tenor of the way people look at issues, depending on which word they sort of embrace more. And the final question, pot taxes and regulation. So they, so basically, here's the problem. Now that you're starting to see uh, pot sort of, uh, or basically cannabis and hemp become sort of legalized, basically government saying, okay, well, cool, let's tax it. Okay, let's regulate it. But then you, you, you perpetuate the problem. Maybe less worse, but still a problem, okay? Especially when you're, th you're thinking about people who are, like, dying, who need, you know, who want to who have weed because it helps them deal with their pain, helps them eat. And they're filling out all this paperwork, having to get approvals from, like, five doctors in some states, um, having to pay all sorts of fees if they're in the life situation. Um, and, and basically because the government thought it was a good idea. And then basically they're paying all this extra money on, on when they finally are able to purchase it because of the taxes they have to pay. Not just the sales tax, but they're also paying all these additional taxes, excise taxes on, on the product itself. You know, and then what happens is just if you make it too hard and you make it too expensive, you just end up pushing people to the black market anyways. There'll still be a market for illegal weed dealers and, and legally grown weed that can be done at a lower cost because they're not dealing with all these rules and taxation. Um... It'll be a smaller black market, but it'll still exist. And you'll still be forcing the most vulnerable people into that market. And that's just kind of disgusting at the end of the day. So that's my thoughts on that. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. I'll see you guys next week. Again, if you like what I do, go to donate.alexmerced.com. Have a great day and enjoy. Thank you for listening to the Alex Merced cast. Learn more at alexmerced.com, libertarian101.com, and libertarianwingmedia.com. Follow Alex Merced on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.